0: I say, let the drugs show you the way. <laughs> Hallelujah!
1: Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm, I'm in. I'm like about 35 years in on yes
0: to that. So far, so good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's a guiding principle of mine as well. Right. So you're a long-term psychonaut. Very true. I had my first experience, my first psychedelic experience when I was 15. And what year was that? Uh, let's go back, 1967. No shit. Yeah. And whereabouts were you living? I was in Claremont, which is a little suburb outside of Los Angeles. Okay, I know uh, where it is. You know, I was going to, uh, you know, I worked my way into a, a private school on scholarship and was going to a private boarding school to which uh, some of the wealthiest families in the country sent their kids. I was there, again, on scholarship, Uh, so it was a a bit different for me to be exposed to the level of wealth that I actually saw at this private school. Uh, And, you know, as a corollary to all that wealth were a lot of really great drugs, you know, because... (laughs) They go together like scotch and soda. (laughs) Let's face it. That's great. That's Uh, great. Keep talking. I'm going to turn off. I just noticed my air conditioner. Keep going. So, um, you know, as a result, I was able to get uh, some Owsley Purple Double Dome. Oh, snap. Which was, uh, you know, I I suppose it was meant to be split in half. Uh, But I took the whole thing and had... Uh, most profound experience. So, double dome is it a gel tab or what is no, it? No, it look was like? a it was a tablet that had had a score in the middle of it, uh, like a hard like a hard tablet, like a pill. Yeah, yeah like a little hard tablet, uh, a little Lawson shape, uh, kind of an oval shape but with a score going down the middle of it, and these purple Owsley double domes were were extremely well regarded. Okay, and uh, you know I actually. Uh, been working with this one guy who was connected to the dead, was able to get them. Uh, but the experience just completely upended my life's direction. I, you know, had the full experience of, you know, having lost my sense of time. So I was in touch with the beginning of time and the end of time. I, uh, When things became difficult at the level of the corporeal body, I found myself floating above my body and and watching right. kind of the play that takes place you know at the level of reality and and you know our normal lives and was able to abstract myself from it and having that objective objectivity I think really changed me it really did right. uh, and so I out of that experience I just decided you know I'm gonna dedicate my life to uh, making this experience available to everyone and i see its transformative value uh i think that there is a possibility to foment social change because i was already at that point you know uh, growing up in the 60s it was inevitable that you had to take a position on the vietnam war uh that you were either pro or anti-hippie uh you know so i'd already gone full hippie and was uh, full anti-war. Nice at that point. Okay. So, um but again, uh, it was a, it was a, an incredible experience that really just completely transformed me. Wow, epic! It's so funny how a, so such a large majority of people when they
1: contact LSD, really get get thrilled and informed with that feeling that they have to begin sharing with everybody because when you see the the depatterning, the repatterning, and and the the, the messages arising spontaneously from the self, how good and right and pure and aligned with the universe and oneself they are, it's always the next logical step of like, we just need to give this to everybody because this, this equation should write,
0: line up the same for just about everyone. And if it does, then we might be living something closer to heaven on earth. Yeah, and that became motivating for me uh, at a number of levels when I uh, went on to do uh, graduate work in anthropology and field work among the Mazatec, uh, I had the idea. Since as a graduate student, you don't make much money, uh, you're you're always broke. Uh, the idea was to smuggle mushrooms into the United States, figure out how to grow them, and then grow thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds, inject them into the culture, yes, and see if we can send things in, you know, push things, nudge things. In a, a, a more beneficial cosmic direction. Hell yeah! So you were
1: you were growing. I, it's so weird. I, I feel like, give me one second here. To, I'm gonna pause for one second. Sorry about that. I just have a feeling like. Track. Go ahead and talk for one second. Hello, hello, hello. And go ahead and talk. Um. Oh shit. Okay. So. Yeah. Oh, boom! Give me one sec. Okay, okay, okay. I just think. Here we go. Okay, go ahead and talk. Uh, how's it
0: going? And one more time. Hello, hello. And one more time. How's everything? And one more time. Hello, hello. Okay. Hello, check.
1: Okay, I'm a little confused, but we're just gonna run all these. Sorry
0: okay so the Mazatecs were uh, the they're uh, an indigenous group in central Mexico they're famous because uh, in 1957 uh, Gordon Wasoon and Roger Heim uh, coerced uh, a, men, uh, a member of the local law enforcement to pressure a curandera named Maria Sabina into providing them with the world's the Western world's first exposure to psilocybin mushrooms. Wow and it was you know pictorially displayed in Life magazine in 1957 and became kind of a, a touchstone for uh, you know, what happened in terms of psychedelic history right um, do you know do you know too about uh,
1: the fact that the CIA, was Instrumental actually funded that
0: that mission? Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Uh, you know, most of my understanding of what the CIA and the Defense Department did in regard to LSD comes out of a, a book called... Uh, it, it's LSD uh, Acid Dreams. That's the name of that book. I remember reading yeah. Acid Dreams. Yeah, it, it has pretty thorough documentation of kind of what took place. Uh, with the CIA and the Department of Defense and the government. But I wasn't aware that they'd actually finance that trip. Uh, I know Wasoon was independently wealthy. I think the real takeaway, he was also a banker for JP Morgan, banker for JP Morgan. Yeah. I think the real takeaway from that was that uh, Maria Sabina, Sabina wasn't, you know, didn't want to just give away uh, this exposure to mushrooms. She didn't want to provide a ceremony for these Western Europeans. They, really, they leaned on the oh, law enforcement wow. to coerce her into okay. providing that experience for them. Wow. So we already have kind of a colonial paradigm, where you know the Westerners show up and they're going to force the indigenous people to give up. You know the the mo- one of the most important aspects of indigenous knowledge, uh, the gateway to the psychedelic experience. And so uh, it didn't turn out well for Maria Sabina as a result of that association. Uh, People blamed her for what took place afterwards, where all these people showed up looking for mushrooms. They actually burned her house down. Oh, no. And chased her out of the village, and I believe her son was killed. Oh, my God. Uh, So they took it very seriously in the community, and she was ostracized to some degree after... uh, the encounter with Westerners. So we leave a trail behind us of kind of colonial devastation that isn't well known. Uh, it, you know, we always put a nice face on it. You know, he came and he, uh, you know, had a, a mushroom experience and everything was wonderful. It wasn't quite like that. No,
1: and, and also uh, he came at the uh, on CIA dollars because they were trying to find ways to program and deprogram people and create Manchurian assassination candidates and white people's minds, et cetera. So there was a there was a whole
0: other other uh, motive at play. There was a strong undercurrent of, you know, of that in the psychedelic movement. You know, it's an underground movement, so it has an association with other underground elements that were certainly unsavory. There was a guy, uh, a Mexican psychiatrist named Salvador Roquette. He's become uh, more well known as a result of the. Cover story podcast from New York Magazine, which uh-huh. talks about uh, how he influenced some of the people who were psychotherapists in the MAPS program for MDMA. Oh, wow. And he had a very unusual approach to both psychotherapy that was actually, uh, he was involved with, as I understand it, torturing people and using oh, no. it coercively to get information from people. But his technique was a less unusual at the time, but from our perspective today was like, uh, you know, really a terrorizing approach to psychotherapy. Really. Uh, it, my experience was I was taken to an event uh, by Dr. Stanley Krippner, who was a, a pretty well-known uh, psychologist who was working in dreams and psychedelics at the time. Uh, to an event in Mexico City that was in an old theater. And um, he, Salvador Raquette would go around to each participant, start talking to them, kind of get some history from them. Some of the people who were at the event had already actually been in psychotherapy with him. Okay. So uh, he would get some information and from that he would construct uh, the type of pharmacological intervention for you that was sort of custom tailored for you. In my case, it was LSD. Other people had, you know, peyote, other people had psilocybin. So it varied from person to person. But uh, what happened next was what was, what was most interesting. Uh, there was a, a screen in front of you, a giant full movie screen, a screen to your right and a screen to your left. Uh, on the screen to your left was homosexual pornography. On the screen to your right was heterosexual pornography. And in front of you... Were Jungian archetypes—the king, the Joker—flashing like this, combined with uh, you know, imagery of people, murder and mayhem, and just whoa, like uh, the clockwork, almost like the clockwork orange kind of set up, kind of kind of set up like that, and so you know, while you're being terrorized by that experience, (laughs) and you're just you're at the peak. Of your LSD experience let's say in my case oh my god he goes around and he has a little drug cabinet with him and he has these acolytes who were going around talking to people as well encouraging them to let go of whatever it is that's holding them back and trying to provoke them over the edge really in some ways he uh, had this little drug cabinet so you're peaking on LSD now he comes out with another substance to push you even further and that substance could be ketamine it could be Datura stramonium, Jimson weed, smoke, scopolamine essentially, yeah, and uh, or DMT. Uh, it depended upon who you were and where, what stage you were in. Gnarly. In my particular case, it was DMT. I was fortunate not to get <laughs> the scopolamine. No, you scored at every step. It sounds yeah, like I did. I was fortunate at every step. Uh, I think he didn't want to abuse, you know, a Westerner quite as much, uh, and so. Okay, so now you're peaking. Now you just had your hit of DMT. He still, it's not over yet. Um, Let's say that you had been having difficulty with your parents. And, you know, you talked about that at some point in the psychotherapy with him. You're peaking on whatever it is. He just gave you the additional drug. He brings in your parents to work out whatever it is that was going wrong. Your actual hey, parents? Your actual parents. He's had them flown in, and here they are, and it's time for you to confront them at this point in the experience. And it could be, it could have been the ex that you had a bad breakup with. It could have been, you know, the brother you haven't spoken to in 20 years for whatever reason. Uh, he, he would figure out whatever particularly traumatic sticking point one might have and, you know, inject it into the conversation at that point. So... Uh, wow. Imagine my surprise when I find out that some of the maps therapists considered this guy, a mentor and an inspiration. I was like, man, I hadn't heard of this. I hadn't thought about the guy in years. And then I find out, wow, these people are consider him an inspiration. I I guess at the time we were trying to be as, uh, provocative as possible. Right. Primal scream therapy was also popular at the time. Uh, well, but, there was just such a there was such a there was such a pushback against the
1: dominant paradigm. Yeah, there was such that a that pushback. it really did go Excessive. it went all the way because everyone yeah. was so buttoned up. Yeah, that the only place to go was all the fucking way. Yeah, exactly. And it's like people got a tiny bit into weed. The yeah. next thing you knew, you were doing acid and cocaine <laughs> and having an orgy on the fucking fo- you know on the eighty freeway because <laughs> you're just you know you're sticking to the man and you're rewriting the paradigm and and uh, so I, I I guess I can see that now. Was this guy? Aligned with Mexican intelligence, or he was just he, as, as it p-
0: turns out, he was involved with both the CIA and uh, uh-huh. the Mexican authorities. They used it to t- torture students to give up information. Uh, you know, because obviously his technique would, you know, render results because you, you become so malleable during the experience that you would say anything probably. Uh, and and so there was Jesus always Christ. to get back to this. There's always been this undercurrent of. You know, the CIA, right. and, you know, it's just a real negative. And I think that kind of describes how the psychedelic experience can go. It can be super positive, yeah. but in the wrong context, it can also be used in a very negative way. Agree. No, I you agree know? very much. People have used it for, it, it's a, they call it
1: sometimes a hypnagogic. And it does make, it can make one more amenable to uh, suggestion. Yeah. And, and just in general, you kind of feel like going with the flow of what's ever happening, and so you can definitely be pushed and prodded, I think, uh, much more so as well. And then, have you read Chaos by Tom O'Neill by any chance? No. Okay, so uh, Chaos is about, he started writing about Charles Manson for, I, think, I believe, Vanity Fair or some magazine. Turned into this 20-plus-year research piece where he tied Manson into MK Ultra and Louis Jolly West. Turns out Louis, uh, the CIA was actually the ma- one of the major funders of the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic. And Louis John Leon West, who's one of the heads of MK Ultra underneath Sidney Gottlieb, Had an office at the Haight Ashbury Free Clinic. Whoa. Right? And so you know how amphetamines came into the 60s, right? Or into the hate in the 60s and ruined it. The CIA under Operation Chaos actually had the Haight Ashbury Amphetamine Project where they set up safe houses and were pushing out amphetamines almost free to disrupt the LSD culture and destroy the hippie movement that's
0: happening. You know, and is it much of a stretch to really see the crack cocaine epidemic as being authored by these same negative forces? you know, the CIA, the government, as a way to disrupt uh, communities that yep. were essentially uh, anti-war, anti-Republican, anti-fascist, uh, and, and a way of targeting them outside of, you know, a legitimate target targeting process. And, you know, it's, it's just not that much of a stretch.
1: You no. Know? And then have you heard of, I know this is going to be crazy, but there's uh, a couple books written by the John Birch Society, Mm-hmm. Uh, none dare call it treason, and none dare call it conspiracy.
0: I'm familiar because back in the day, you know, so I read those. I
1: read those when I didn't know that they were Birch-aligned publications. When in the '80s, when I was a teenager, mm-hmm. I just stumbled across them. Mm-hmm. And the crazy thing about them, I highly suggest anyone to go read them, because they detail out everything that's happened since the writing of those books till now is detailed out in the books, including. Nixon in, in the second volume, None Dare Call It Treason, Nixon uh, in, in instigating the drug war in order to take out the Black Panthers, people of color, the American Indian movement, uh, the Students for a Democratic Society, and basically all of these fringe liberal groups, because the one tie that all of these groups had that they weren't really able to criminalize their behavior because they weren't doing anything wrong other was drug usage, primarily cannabis usage. Right. And so they used the war on drugs and primarily cannabis as a lever
0: to disrupt the entire left. So we can say, you know, that the establishment was genuinely fearful at this time. I mean, when you saw the number of people that were at the anti war demonstration, like in 68, 70, and the gathering momentum and collective nature of that struggle, when you saw that I could see why they would start to say, Uh oh, we gotta do something to turn this tide because the next thing you know we're gonna have, you know, uh we're gonna have a torchlight parade to the to the wealthiest families and uh, etc yeah so no, that was what was coming and and
1: so much of it again to just keep looping i love this type of conversation because it's just like a psychedelic looping back looping back spiraling into itself the brotherhood uh-huh. uh, who were the brotherhood of eternal love who were learned from owsley about the lsd trade and how to make lsd and they were smuggling hash to to fund their the lsd manufacturer that, yeah. uh, they were also funding the weather underground students for democratic society the black panthers the white panthers and 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 a, a huge amount of these movements as well as Woodstock and Altamont like the it was at this one point it was literally like the brotherhood it was like the brotherhood versus the feds for control of America and they really got so close to actually winning like the freaks almost won right and it wasn't until America really showed the canines and just began wholesale assassination and imprisonment that they were able to get a back get a back control of what was
0: going on so it my experience with you know so i i started this project you know got the mushrooms into the united states figured out how to grow them nice. on a commercial scale started growing thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds and shipping them all over the country and i thought you know man this is really going to turn the tide is it any coincidence that at that point all of a sudden the country became a wash in cocaine and uh, right. everybody nixon comes in, you know into the presidency and uh everybody's doing cocaine my mushroom business fell off a cliff nobody not only could i not get funding for psychedelic research but i also noticed in terms of consumption that nobody was interested in mushrooms anymore everybody was interested in greed selfishness <sighs> cocaine and you know they must have seen it coming and found a way to Derail disrupt the, yeah. the psychedelic movement at that time. Right. So here we are coming back around again with another psychedelic movement. Right. Uh it's a, it's kind of got a different integration this time than well, it this had time, last time. So many of the freaks have college degrees mm-hmm.
1: and are degreed scientists and academics. And hats off to Rick Doblin. I know a lot of people have a lot to say about him on every side of the coin, but hats off to him mm-hmm. for getting the FDA to agree to work with teaching universities and scientists with these molecules to demonstrate that they are non-toxic and in fact, highly beneficial. And that's really the cool thing is we had the, uh, you know, the thesis and antithesis synthesis. I can, I know what it means. I can barely say it. Right. You know, the thesis at first was that was the governing, you know, the world of, of Oxford and Harvard and Yale running the United States and England and running the, the, the country and then the world in this colonial game of monopoly. The antithesis was the psychedelic '60s, the freak power movement, and just the complete breaking with all norms. And now we're we're at the synthesis, where it's come back around again, and people are using the 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 actual rules of the game to reframe the game, and we're creating a scientific canon that shows that these substances are safe to use and should be be used because they're beneficial for
0: humans. Yeah, you know, and I I think probably the most important movement is the decrim movement, you know, in order to change that worldview, change that mindset. And, uh, you know, I I know it's having a difficult time right now, but uh, Measure 109 in Oregon and the opportunity to actually clinically distribute psilocybin, yes, I I believe that's a great step forward. You know, it's as if Oregon has already decided, yes, these compounds are safe. They have a long legacy history of safety. We've had at least 30 years of psilocybin clinical trials and and haven't had a problem. And we've had, you know, 7,500 years of association with these substances. Yes. Uh, And, you know, now we're at a point where, you know, we're wondering, uh, you know, it's safe. We've demonstrated it's safe. We've also kind of decided they're effective. You know, we have a, a accumulating body of clinical research. That says that, hey, they help with depression. They help with anxiety. They help with all these different things. Uh, th- there's a broad spectrum of of, of beneficial effects. So Oregon decided one they're safe, two they're effective. Now it's a matter of fine tuning the model and saying, you know, how can we make them most effective, and what under what circumstances can they actually be used to help and treat people? Right. And and how can we broaden you know, what we use them for. Can we just use them to sort things out? Can we use them to work on a couple's relationship? Can we use them to get closer to nature? Can we use that, you know, outside of strictly medical indications, what are all the different things we can use these things for? Yeah, so far the answer is yes to everything. <laughs> <laughs> it seems and, that way. <laughs> and and, and
1: what, I, what I... A, just getting them into people because they will do the work themselves. Mm-hmm. And then B working towards some sort of non-religious ceremonial group usage by society is where I think we really need to head to because we need critical masses of enough people getting on the spirit canoe at the same time on the same substance with each other that we can really lock in and connect and start to understand what we need and what we need to do to move the ball forward for the rate for the, for the species.
0: Well, I think two things. One is that um, we, we, we need to, Go slow and carefully on the religious context, Agreed. because it's in that milieu that we find the suggestibility and the uh, we we find certain individuals differentiating themselves as leaders and telling you what's what, and so we got to be careful. We have, we have an automatic careful. rule that, that we don't listen to that motherfucker.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yes, I've I have been dedicated to not starting a cult my whole life. Yeah. And one of the things I'm really good at is not fucking following people and just pointing that shit out to other people as well. So like, there's nobody who can actually solve your problems but you. Right. Maybe you can talk to your friends and get a little insight to reframe your perspective to help. Maybe if it's a heavy thing to lift, you need someone to lift it for a minute. But when it comes to the big problem of who am I, where am I going, etc., the answer is nobody actually knows and you're going to fucking die. And right. you just got to man up or woman up, be a fucking adult, and deal with that and stop trying to put your problems and your decision-making off on some guru or some cosmic space daddy or mommy that's going to
0: solve your thinking for you. A- absolutely correct. And and I think that it's also important to realize that you know the ethics for running this don't come from inside of us. We don't say, let me check in and see if I'm a sexual predator. <laughs> uh, we, we, those... Those <laughs> rules come oh, sorry from that. outside of us. Agreed. In other words, we have a rule that says, you know, when you cross this line, you're a sexual predator. Yes. You know, uh, and it's not something, well, let me check with myself and figure no, out. No, because a lot of I'm people,
1: at. a lot of people don't do that. And, and
0: one of the things that really blew me away is that
1: such a large amount of people who have contacted, contacted psychedelics, I expect them to have a similar similar affect and experience with them, but I find that for whatever reason, I just have been very lucky in that I get very clear messaging about how to behave, and very clear instruction about uh, my own ethics, my own integrity, how to navigate through the world, and that a lot of people don't, but then in reading the works of Don Juan and then talking to other indigenous folks who are curanderos uh, or, or other appointed spiritual leaders, what you find out is they delineate everything into curinderismo or healing, and then Brujeria or sorcery. And so it gets to, there's a huge amount of people who actually need a lot of help because they are so wound up with their ego that somehow they're able to navigate and penetrate the psychedelic space and not be affected by their own behavior. Right, And that's where it becomes important to have these overlaying codes of behavior so that we can all check in and know what's right and not.
0: Indigenous societies have this religious ceremonial container the psychedelic experience and it's within that and it there are rules that kind of govern how everything takes place And, and you know that perhaps removes the authoritarian tendency or the unsupervised direction into authoritarianism but i will say also there's a recognition in indigenous societies that there's uh you know a wide array of personalities uh and some of them are positive and beneficial and some of them are psychopathic and negative right and indigenous societies are organized in terms of balance there's no getting rid of that negative energy there's no getting rid of it we have to recognize it channel it and find constructive ways to contain it ceremonially and according to ritual Uh, so in Uh, indigenous societies you often have the shaman who is recognized for their ability to heal and they have a genetic proclivity that sort of sends them in the direction of being a good healer usually runs in family lineages uh that individual uh you know goes through a period of time in their life where they're lost they don't know what's going on they don't know how to control their power they go through a long mentorship uh the channels their uh their their skill set in a positive direction on the other hand in these same societies you have individuals who are recognized as being psychopathic from the day they're born that is this kid just likes to pull the legs off of flies he you know tortures animals whatever it is yeah right that has a genetic proclivity as well and a particular skill set as well and that individual in an ind- indigenous society is channeled in the direction of a mentorship with someone who will provide a, a ritual container for those kinds of activities as well as well. So you get a balance wow. where you've got healing on one side, you've got negative energy on the other, and you know you're not if you take the negative energy in the psychopathology and you push it out and you and you say, oh you can only live on the fringes. Then it will be uncontrolled, and it will come back. It's going to gonna come you. back to get you. Yeah, yeah. it will come back to get you, and you will have no way to control it. Right. But if you bring it in and you create a ritual structure right. for it to operate in, then you are able to exercise some control over it. Shepherd it somewhat, and, you know, and at So least perhaps, perhaps we can take it. our inspiration from uh, indigenous groups in that way. You know, in you know, for example, in California Indian groups, they have a figure, the Pomo in the area we are right now, uh, a figure called the Walepo. The okay. Walepo was described in the literature as appearing on a whirlwind. Uh, actually, what they had was a cape made out of condor feathers. Wow. One of these capes actually exists in the Smithsonian. Oh, you wow. can actually go see it. And you can imagine the difficulty for an individual to collect condor feathers. Right. That's not an easy task. Right. So to make an entire cape out of them was, uh, you know, a bar that you had to cross. Gotcha. So uh, they also had to learn how to walk on stilts and twirl this cape in such a way that it looked like they were on a whirlwind. So they're operating on stilts, they're twirling this cape. You had to go through all those kind of ritual behaviors before you could be a Walepo. And uh, a Walepo was an individual who, let's say that you crossed a, a line, a taboo and you were away from the group when you shouldn't be, and you were doing something you shouldn't do, their favorite method of killing you was to take your arm off and shove it down your throat. So this figure, always lurking in mythology, it's somebody in your group who looks like Clark Clark Kent by day, but then transforms into this figure under certain ritual conditions where perhaps... Uh, you know, he's not able to contain the urge and it's the right time, but he has to follow all the rules. Wow. And they announce their presence with a bone whistle that they blow, and it's almost like a rattlesnake. If you hear that whistle, you know the trouble's coming, right? Wow. And so that is counterposed in American, in California Indian societies uh, against the shaman, who is completely dedicated to healing and curing what whatever it is uh, that's that's uh, you know uh, an illness or some kind of problem uh, underneath those people you have you know a hierarchy where you have on the shaman side uh, herbalists and people who help you with potions and spells and stuff like that not the full shaman but underneath them okay. and then on the Walepo side You have individuals underneath them who are poisoners, supernatural, uh, you know, do things to you on a supernatural uh, plane. So that's the way indigenous societies are able to organize and channel these negative influences. You know, in Western society, we just let everything run wild and see what (laughs) happens. (laughs) And currently, yeah, we kind of are. and, And we just... We just try to
1: repress and ignore that there's any negativity until it gets so malignant that it has to be sentenced to
0: prison. Yeah. And then we have our Charles Mansons yeah. and, you know, or people who go berserk and, and you know, shoot people. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's the challenge. How do we integrate all of this into a structure that allows it to exist but doesn't allow it to get out of hand?
1: Very that's the so. challenge. Very much
0: so. Right. I think that psychedelics are really a, a
1: key tool in that science of our psychology and our society. I don't know that anybody really has even the messages or the or the, the protocol together yet for how we fuck and unfuck it. I mean, I think the first thing is we really reorder our, our society towards compassion. One thing I'd say is that uh, in attending Burning Man a lot, uh-huh. so Burning Man used to be like kind of a free for all, and then it moved into a barter economy and then into a gift economy. And what I noticed with the gift-based economy is that the same guys out here that are like you know Elon Musk and all these tech bros who were you know have like a six-figure watch collection and three Teslas and are constantly flexing on each other with their peacocking right and and yeah. their, their attempts to buy more companies et cetera et cetera when you place them into these gifting economies that same guy whereas where he would buy a watch to show off now he's going to fund an art car where he would buy you know a Tesla or a, or a mansion. He's gonna fund an entire sound camp, and if we reframe, we reframe the metric to a gift-based economy, then all of a sudden you capture these guys' sociopathological ego,
0: and you yoke it for the benefit of the group. That's brilliant. I, I you know, I think that's that's exactly kind of what I think we need to do. Right. right. Yeah. And so when I see rich people, when I see people that are just exceedingly wealthy, I tend to
1: feel pity for them, and not like they have the worst life in the world, but I just tend to feel for them like oh, what a bummer that you literally need. Remember when we were to the guy at Tim's house and he was a billionaire and he lived in the special billionaire place with a giant beamed house and, and everything was plastic and brand new. And and all I could think of was like, I really actually feel for this guy because he seems to be surrounded by a bunch of glad-handing yes-men that just have the knife behind their back. They're waiting to strike at any moment. And I don't feel any groundedness in this house and I don't feel home. yeah, And I really feel like, bro it feel so much better if he would go and give half of his money away to some programs to house and treat and feed other people. And he lived in a sweet four bedroom house in Mission Beach. He'd probably be 50, 60 times more happy. And I, I tend to see that with a lot of richer folks who are entrepreneurs and, or, you know, these big business guys is they actually very few of them seem happy beyond explaining and demonstrating
0: what they have or they have created through their money. So we're really identifying, you know, the accumulation of wealth as a kind of psychopathology. Very much so. That, you know, needs to be dealt with. Yes. And, and, you know, I I think you're really onto something there. You know, uh, one thing I did notice about Tim was uh, how everybody was kind of instrumental to him. Uh, It's very difficult to have relationships with people because no one's on your level. Right. So everybody becomes, you know, an instrument to get you to something else. Right. Or, you know, a pawn in their game essentially. Right. Uh, and once human relationships devolve to that level, then it starts to characterize your entire worldview. You start to see everything that way. So everything becomes a cult, Everything cult, you can dead do to work. upend that that yes. paradigm, I think, is is extremely worthwhile. Agreed. And again again, psychedelics are revelatory. They pull the cover back on things. They let you see kind of the inner workings, the real workings of things, uh, and and so you know that's really where we have to go.
1: Agreed, agreed. So you're working that, that kind of brings us into my next question, which is you're working with a new Irish pharmaceutical company, right? Can I you am, talk about that?
0: Yeah. Okay. Cool. The company is Alvarius Pharmaceuticals. Uh, it you know myself and uh, another. Uh, guy Alan Jocelyn, who uh is the CEO. He has a long experience in pharma. Uh, both of us were kind of brought in to kind of put the company on the right direction, and figure out how to make make it work essentially. And you have to understand this is in the the milieu of the psychedelic industry, and uh, psychedelic venture capital. All of that uh, is an element of what becomes the strategy for how you, you push things forward because you're in you're in that environment. And and it's Alvarius Pharmaceutical, but you're doing psilocin, psilocybin, and
1: 5MEO DMT, which we come from the, the Alvarius Toad?
0: Actually not yeah, the Alvarius Toad is the name of the company. Okay. Uh, what we particularly are looking at uh are kind of the focus that I brought to the company okay. is looking at compressed experience tryptamines and ergolines so what my premise is can we accomplish in a shorter period of time what it takes lsd and psilocybin you know six to twelve hours to accomplish gotcha and so ergolines would be er- ergo LSD alkaloids lsd related compounds
1: oh so lsd is not a tryptamine
0: no it, it does have oh. tryptamine receptors uh it, it hits broadly a number of different receptors but usually classed as an ergoline, just to distinguish it from tryptamines. Huh, okay, cool. I, I didn't realize it. That's actually, yeah. okay. So, you know, uh, ultimately, it originally de- derived from the ergot fungus mm-hmm. and the lysergic acid amides that right. are in the ergi- ergot fungus. Right. But, uh, again, LSD is a long, long, long way from being a botanical. It has nothing, <laughs> nothing to do with being a botanical. No I sir. can, I no, can sir. tell you the chemical process is extremely long and complex, and you're you're several miles away from botanical. So at any rate, the focus here is on compressed experience, uh, okay. tryptamine, psychedelic compounds. Uh, you know the the lead candidate that we have in our pipeline right now is a naturally occurring compound, five methoxy DMT. Right. Which is the component of, you know, a lot of botanical preparations uh, in indigenous groups. Right. There's been a long association with it. Uh, you know, it occurs naturally. Uh, the, we generally use the synthetic version. It's a little more predictable, a little easier to use. But it really does accomplish uh, essentially the same thing. The experience is a very sudden onset, as you may know, uh, and a very rapid sudden onset. Uh, within minutes, you're higher than you've ever been in your entire life. Yes. Uh, and then uh, a gradual descent really over about half an hour uh, to an hour. And you're, you're you're a little fuzzy when you're back down, but you're back down again. Right. Uh, and the premise is, can we accomplish with that shorter compressed experience, the same kind of rewiring and funct- changes in functional connectivity uh, between different brain structures that occur with psilocybin and LSD. And my my thought is yes. So uh, I over the last twenty five years have been developing a portfolio of novel compounds. One of the, I was fortunate to have a, a, a mentorship with Alexander Shulgin, oh. who pointed me in the direction of you know these expressed these compressed experience short duration tryptamine compounds. Okay. Uh, and so I've developed that portfolio over that length of time, but what I'm most excited about is one of the new preclinical tools that Alvarius has. Uh, and that is the brain organoid model that I was telling you about. Oh, earlier. Oh yeah. Could you please, could you explain that? Cause that was really yeah, so, super interesting. Uh, we take, uh, human derived stem cells, uh, Originally, you had to have a skin punch out. Now we can uh, obtain them from either blood or urine. So collecting the stem cells is not difficult and not intrusive. And from that, we uh, differentiate those stem cells to become mini brains, brain organoids. They actually differentiate into glial cells, into neuronal structures, hippocampus. We actually start to see... differentiation of different brain structures in in vitro the entire lifespan of development of the brain kind of in in miniature such a trip. and and so what we find is that it allows us to experiment on these brains which are essentially human brains and see how different drugs affect them and see how different uh disease states or you know, medical indications might be represented with them and how we can use a pharmacological intervention uh, to change or alter or reverse that process. So in the, you know, our main focus currently is on cocaine addiction, It's just where we're starting. We're also looking at alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder. Um, uh, that, and that's just the, that's the formal nomenclature. It basically means the same as addiction. Well, you know, you, you start with one area, one indication, and then you try to broaden it out gotcha. so it more fully represents substance abuse in general. Okay. Uh, gotcha. A broader mechanism of action that maybe could go across all substance abuse indications, as well as perhaps some other compulsive disorders like compulsive eating, compulsive gambling. Maybe there's a commonality of mechanism of action that runs think across there is. all of that. Right? Yeah, I would think there is. But it has to be demonstrated, so you start somewhere. Gotcha. So um, we started with cocaine addiction. Uh, so we take these little mini brains and we addict them to cocaine over a two week period. And by addict, I mean, we expose them to uh, you know, amounts that are, would be equivalent to somebody who was using cocaine. Okay. And so what we see, uh, the way we measure the changes are by quantifying biomarkers uh, at the epigenetic cellular level that represent cellular processes genetic processes, metabolic processes, like a whole range of different cellular processes. And what we found is, and I'll get right to the point, uh, that by using exposing a, a brain that's been addicted to cocaine to 5-methoxy-DMT, we see a 75 to 80% reversal of the biomarker overexpression that we see with cocaine addiction. That's amazing. It's amazing. It is. So uh, it, it's like a new tool for demonstrating exactly how these things, these compounds could be effective to treat uh, substance abuse. So uh, it also allows for a couple of other things. Uh, one is uh, in my process of organic chemistry, I can address my the structural changes in the molecules that I make directly to those biomarkers and i can say okay what i'm trying to do is i'm not trying to cure substance abuse with the structural changes that i'm making that's too broad and too complex a topic what i'm trying to do is change these biomarkers this one this one this one and this one with a a novel chemistry that goes straight for those particular biomarkers and then almost almost acts like a key and a lock and just clicks
1: those particulars tumblers over
0: it, it it clicks those tumblers over. so now we're reversing biomarkers that are specifically associated with addiction. So in the drug Pandemic. discovery process, you know now I bring in you know artificial intelligence, machine learning, computational chemistry, and I start generating structures that really work for these particular biomarkers. Wow. So as a result, we end up with novel compounds that are again working in the area of short duration, psychedelic compounds that really change these biomarkers. Now, the other thing that we can tell is maybe more exposure reverses even more of the biomarkers. So maybe compressed experience isn't perfect. Maybe we need to be an hour and a half. Maybe we need to be two hours, but that's something that we can examine and check with this. Now, the other thing that this does, that's kind of unique is now let's say that somebody you know, is cured of their addiction, and they actually go for, forward, and they're doing fine. But then, uh, you know, later on down the line, they might have a relapse. Right. What if we can keep their mini brain, and we know that you know from stem cells that came directly from them, so oh, that we know. Oh, I didn't even think so. You. We can predict this person is going to fail at six months because we're using can set, their stem
1: cells to make their mini brain, not a generic. It's just exactly. human brain i didn't even I didn't
0: okay understand. so now i'm tracking their brain and i use it to personalize the treatment yes so i can say okay look this guy's going to fail at six months we have to come in with another intervention wow. prior to that right to be able to extend the durability of the treatment effect so that's wizard you know and yeah. so that's that's what these things do now let me tell you what else they do uh so eventually we will all have a biobank of our own mini brains and Whoa. so when we, when we get hit with drugs, we'll be able to hit our mini brains first, and we'll be able to say, okay, what are the side effects, the neurological side effects, that uh, accompany the use of this compound? We'll be able to predict and say, hey, look, you know, maybe this isn't this particular uh, pharmaceutical is not appropriate for this individual because wow. of the way it affects his biomarkers. Let's alter it or use a secondary compound right. or whatever it is. It also allows us to screen clinical populations. So we know that this works over a broad number of mini brains, but this guy here, he's an outlier. right? And, and we've identified him as being an outlier. So do we wanna include him in the clinical study? Probably not. We're gonna put him over here and figure out a new strategy for that yeah. outlier. So this offers a new tool. And the way I look at it, it's not just simply that we're, we're getting in a new car and driving down the same road. We're on an entirely different road, <laughs> <laughs> and we're going new
1: places. Yeah, it's excellent. <laughs> and, and so what is the what is the application methodology?
0: I'm, I'm guessing it's not a vapor cartridge, it's not smoked? No, that's, that's a whole other thing. You know, so uh, 5-methoxy is challenging because it doesn't survive first pass oral hepatic metabolism. That right. means the liver gets rid of it if you take it orally, so it has no effect. If you, you just try to swallow it, goes into the GI tract, liver gets rid of it. Right. So uh, the challenge is to develop a pre-gastric method of gl- delivery that avoids so the GI like a, tract. So maybe like a nose spray or a an a, a nose spray that goes in through the mucous membranes in the nose, a rapidly dissolving sublingual that goes under the tongue and okay. goes into the mucous membranes through the, through the mouth, Okay. Uh, a, a buccal film that you put on your cheek that... that goes in that way and has actually may have a barrier on one side that prevents oh, diversion okay. down the GI tract. Gotcha. Uh, or uh, a, one of my favorite, the transdermal patch. So we have gotcha. a transdermal patch that we're working on Okay. that you put it on and then 20 minutes later you have full blood levels of 5-methoxy DMT. Yeah, those work
1: great. Trans, They have them now for THC, CBD, Yeah, I did a fentanyl transdermal patch back in the late 90s before we knew what fentanyl really was and uh, almost killed myself on accident on one of my little... uh, You know, my friend came over from this lady's house who had died of cancer and he cleaned her house out and he came over with like her big bag of drugs and he was giving all of his friends like different handouts from the bag of drugs and I got this fentanyl patch and this was like 99, so nobody even knew what fentanyl was. And so I put this patch on and I didn't realize until later you're only supposed to have it on for 10 minutes. So I put this patch on. I immediately passed out, and I was able to just wake up at some point and rip it off, which most likely kept me alive, kept me from overdosing to death. Right. And then I was sick for two and a half days, throwing up, headaches, spinning, itchy skin, like just full, horrible, full withdrawals. Yeah. And then uh, that was Literally my toxic. only that was my yeah. only uh, foray into the opioid world. Other than one time drinking opium tea. Other than that, I was like, ah, I'm good. I tried it. It's not my thing.
0: Well, the transdermal patch offers a number of interesting advantages one is it can have kind of a reservoir uh in it that allows it to be a longer experience okay than just simply the half hour one hour like experience. a time it, release it could be a little bit more of a time release uh you can actually interrupt that process by just taking it off yes which is kind of a safety valve feature right. that i kind of like right uh but in general the challenge is to develop pre-gastric forms of delivery cool uh there is actually an opportunity, a business opportunity there, because if your formulation, your, let's say your oral formulation, uh, and your delivery method is novel enough, you can actually take a generic product off the shelf, and with a novel form of delivery or formulation, you can make it a patentable drug product, the same as if it, it was a brand new molecule huh it, it, you know it, in order to make these formulations you actually do thousands of tests let's say let's take the transdermal thing for example okay. we want to see how it permeates through the skin how rapidly it is so the other thing that you're doing with formulation besides simply you know duplicate getting it into the bloodstream is there's a problem with tolerability and 5-methoxy DMT you know that sharp onset okay that that's mind blowing to some people you know yeah. that, that's something that I think people have some difficulty with.
1: Oh, mind-blowing
0: in a bad way to people. Mind-blowing because yeah. it, it's so sharp. You're it's saying so mind-blowing, and I'm like, I'm like yeah. yeah. You know, there are those of us who feel about it, <laughs> feel that way about it, but yeah. they're, they're really... I get what you're saying. It can be disturbing. It can be dislocating. It yes. be jarring. To someone who's never had an experience remotely Dang like it. this, it could really be dangerous in terms of patient tolerability. Get it. So the idea here is to moderate that onset through formulation, gotcha. so that it's not quite so sudden and jarring, and broaden the therapeutic peak. So we know that this middle part is the best part, the therapeutic Where part. Where you're getting the, the right? real so effect. You're a little form. more moderated onset, a little slower, uh, longer therapeutic peak, and uh, a gradual descent. That's really the PK that we're looking at. We can do that through formulation. Okay. Wow. And then how what is the
1: legality status like if you were to formulate these you would not really be able to use them in the US except in trials or, or some sort of Initial
0: DMT is a schedule 1 compound stupid. that means it, it supposedly has no medical value which makes it very difficult to do research on it when we all know it obviously has a great deal of medical yeah, value. Or, uh, so that makes everything diffi- more difficult in clinical trials. You have to get if you are operating in the US you have to get special approval from the DEA wow. uh, to allow you to do it. Uh, when you go to somebody to manufacture it, they have to be Schedule One licensed to be able to manufacture it. Right. When you ship it around, it can only go from a Schedule One to a Schedule One facility. Uh, you know all kinds of difficulties that you know are an impedance to actually doing the clinical research. Gotcha. And, and, and does then, it? the The question is, does it have any potential, real potential for abuse? You if know. you had any experience with it. You would not think that it has a tremendous. No, That's impossible. For
1: abuse. No. Yeah, yeah. try to keep smoking this and want to keep smoking oh, it. Oh my god! Okay, like, give me a minute. Okay, yeah, yeah. I just want to be a I, human.
0: Just, I want to be on the ground for yeah. a minute. You know,
1: I like having eyelids that close and I don't <laughs> yeah. see anything for just a moment.
0: Yeah. Fuck. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't really have that potential for abuse built into it. So I would think. you
1: be would you be able to use it in Ireland in clinical settings, or, no. or would it be kind of a similar? process where you'd have to go through
0: the the trials the united states leaves its opinion about uh you know drugs all over the entire western world so there is a process similar to the fda in uh ireland and in europe uh uh, in in the u.s when you put together a package for a clinical trial it's called an ind package and in it you have a bunch of preclinical data that says hey Look, we gave this to rats and it didn't cause cancer, and it, you know, pregnant rats weren't affected, and you know, a whole range of studies that you have to do to prove that it doesn't have much toxicity. All right, and you know, you have to prove that it has some level of efficacy preclinically. You know, these rats seem to do, be doing better, whatever it happens to be. So you demonstrate all that pre- preclinically. That goes into your IND package okay. to be able to get the approval to do a clinical trial. Okay. So Ireland and Europe has a similar process. They call it a CTA instead of an IND. Okay. And you have to put together the argument that says uh, in a, in what's called an investigator brochure where you have the argument, yes, this drug is effective. Yes, it's safe. Yes, we want to get ethics approval to... Use it in a clinical trial and you gotta go through a whole process to get okay. it approved. Okay. So you'll you'll be entering in that process once you
1: have your substance. Yeah, so
0: uh, again, looking at five methyoxy DMT and how you know rough the onset is. I wanted to do an investigator initiated study before the phase one clinical trial. So phase one clinical trial, safety. That's what you do with a phase right. one trial. You're phase making sure two, no one's gonna overdose, et cetera. Phase two, you're looking at effectiveness. You, now you're instead of just a population of healthy volunteers you're actually using some addicts okay where you're trying to see does this actually, actually work right uh and then phase three you're broadening that group to see if it works on a broader more scale. in general more okay. in general so uh before we do the phase one trial i wanted to do get a handle on how tolerable this experience is to people so We're doing an escalating dose study at UCSF. Oh wow! With uh, awesome with Josh Woolley, Uh, he's a psychiatrist there involved with their psychedelic program, Uh, and uh, what we'll be doing is doing an escalating dose study, where we'll give people uh, the drug intramuscularly, so we'll be giving you a a shot. Basically, here you go. Okay. Uh, And. When you wow. give people a shot of this stuff, the stuff, the onset is more gradual. Oh, it is. It, it's not as, as sharp as, as when you inhale it. Oh, I and thought it was the same. The dose is much more controllable, too. We have a very specified oh. dose. You take an inhalation, what if you take Who a little knows? inhalation? Yeah. That's one level. Take a big inhalation, that's a whole other level. Right. You can get up to 35 milligrams of DMT in an inhalation. Uh, The active, you know, the target dose for us is probably somewhere around 12 to 18 milligrams. Oh, wow. People can have, you know, uh, a really wild experience with inhalation or nasal sprays. So what we want to do with the IM delivery is, okay, now we're going to take people's blood levels during the whole experience. And we're going to look at blood levels of the drug and see how that correlates with experience. And we'll be able to design our pre oral formulations and transdermal formulations to kind of match using that IM-PK right. profile as a baseline. So based on these, on these arcs that you yeah. get in so these graphs. So we're going to try and we know what that arc look like looks like with IM. Then we're going to come in with uh, you know our oral formulation that is a little more moderated and a little broader peak. Wow. But we have something as a benchmark by which to measure it. So I'm hoping that by the time we get to our phase one study, which is later in the year, that we'll be able to have a cohort or another arm of the study, which has a transdermal patch and uh, some kind of oral sublingual, whether it's a film or a sublingual tablet. Killer. uh, As part of the deal, and probably an IM group as well, as well as a placebo group. So that, that trial will be conducted likely at Trinity College in Ireland. Uh, with a lot of the people who did a lot of the work at Compass Pathways uh, with psilocybin. Is They're there a way for people trained. to contact these study groups to volunteer? Yeah. You know, uh, at UCSF, they'll be looking for healthy volunteers. And, uh, you know, I can... <laughs> can, you, you know, uh, can you point me to the form? I, as I'm walking by the pile of applicants, I can move yours to the top <laughs> Very of the nice. pile. And Very nice. We'll see what happens. <laughs> I hear this guy's really good. Here's a yeah. picture of him at a lion. wedding. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He, yeah. he knows what he's doing yeah, uh, yeah. I, I I hear he's had some experience so probably he's not going to freak out yeah once this happens yeah you know i was just at you know where they do it it's pretty much a hospital environment it you tends know, you, to have to be You gotta bad. have nursing staff there yeah. who's ready to take blood and all yeah. kinds of stuff so dig yeah. it you know it's a little it's a little foreign not as much squish and yeah you bring your own laser
1: yeah yeah so <laughs>
0: you know no couches no blinds no no psychedelic music. I don't yeah, think. I got gotcha. you. know,
1: just. But the real, I mean, really for me, the five meo and the, the nndmt experience, it, when done at that level, that threshold, mm-hmm. it's so internal. I really want to have my eyes closed anyway, yeah, and, and it's all much. happening inside of myself. So. And this matter. will be an
0: escalating dose study, so we'll start out with you know, like a minimal dose. But this is something else that's kind of unique about five methoxy DMT compared to LSD and psilocybin. You give somebody psilocybin or LSD. There has to be a refractory period before you can give it to them again. Right. And expect the same effect. Usually, that's like a week. And we would call it. We would call
1: it doubling the dose. Like if you took a hit of acid at, at the Grateful Dead on on Friday. Yeah. You had to take two hits to get the one hit worth on Saturday, and then four to get the I one on Sunday. Never heard it
0: put quite that way, but right. yeah, I get I get the, you know. So uh,
1: I, I mean, get, we're talking we're talking Grateful Dead science, yeah, bro.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I can dig it. Uh, so. Yeah, it works something like that. You have to rebuild the neurochemistry in order for the effect to occur again. I, I used to think, you know, it was like once a week, and it is something I kind of pioneered back in the 70s, trying to see how closely I could get the experiences to occur. That doesn't occur with 5-methyoxy DMT. In the case of 5-methyoxy DMT, you can give somebody a dose, and then, you know, 10 you minutes there, later, what? give them another dose. Yeah. It's it's the same effect. And it's the same with NN as well,
1: I believe, right? Yeah, yeah. You it is. just pretty much smoke it till the cows come home. You, you, you yeah. just
0: keep token on it. Yeah. And so that offers uh, a, a little more clinical flexibility. Yeah. You know? Harkening back
1: to what you said, I did also have a summer where I made sure to eat LSD or mushrooms once every other day. Once every other day, a couple times once every three days, but for yeah. the most part, it was once every other day for about a four-month period. And it was actually really amazing, and I think it was really so good So you for were me. that test subject. Yeah, I did. I was doing my own test. I'm like, what happens if you do this every day, every other day? And and what happens is you you end up a lot happier and more in tune with nature. And the world just seems magic and fucking awesome. Well, But it was a very small study
0: size of me. So I can't say that that's true for everybody. I I made some uh, LSD-25 back in the day. And then I did a similar thing. And I ended up thinking, you know what, really, this only works properly if it's once a week. But if you make LSD-25, and and this is something that I I say all the time, uh, what you see on the street usually is a soup of isomers of LSD because the lab technique involved in making actual LSD-25 is very rigorous and demanding and very difficult. I've heard it's very difficult to actually make very pure LSD. To make pure LSD-25. But if you do, in fact, make Pure LSD twenty five. It's like somebody delivered uh, the knowledge of the entire universe straight to your brain, and uh, you find that the world is love and everything is cool. And it's like it's it's a completely different experience than what you usually get on the street.
1: Right. I I have had some quite a few hit or miss, spotty or really dirty LSD experiences that were really rough. Yeah. And I yeah. I got really into poorly life. made. I got really into my sourcing and the purer the LSD is, the more even though it's more visual, it'll be more psychologically calming. Yeah. And you won't have quite that that same level of just pedal to the metal octane going on, which tends right. to be it doesn't it
0: loses the edge.
1: Yeah. You know. Uh, yeah. you're yeah. more like instead of like, ah,
0: fried balls! Yeah.
1: You're more like, oh wow, like I'm a part of the universe. Oh, and this is so everything's beautiful. made of this love. This is so wonderful. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it's more like that. Yeah. So um so so in the sixties, you were getting into the Mazatec mushrooms, right? Yeah. And then, what? Because uh, I'm just trying to trace this arc from the mushrooms right. to now being chief science officer. Sure. Why don't you Why don't you kind of pick up the thread from there?
0: Well, I've had a couple different lives. Uh, <laughs> one is in an academic world, and sort of the commercial world, and the other is in the underground chemistry world right. uh, as well. So one of the projects. You know, after I did mushrooms and, you know, people weren't really taking mushrooms, I I really felt like I wanted another underground commercial project. And what I kind of came up with because I had connections to the uh, pre-cartel organizations in Mexico was taking genetics from Mendocino in the, the, that I developed in this, in the late seventies into Mexico to improve the genetics of what was being grown in Mexico on a on a commercial scale, and sort of revolutionized oh, what was coming across the border. And we're talking cannabis, right? Because right. at that point there was nowhere else to do a commercial project, right? Except for Mexico. So right. uh, I was able to get in touch with uh, you know my friends who had relationships with some of the early cartel, uh, you know, over bosses. And I pitched this idea to them, and that idea took me way into Mexico wow. and way wow. into cartel organizations. Wow. But this is all uh, a prelude to actually how I started making LSD. Okay. Um, so I'm going along, you know, uh, sending these genetics. I met, you know, Rafael Caro Quintero and Felix Gallardo, who were some of the early people who set up. The plaza system in Mexico, where they move things from right. plaza to plaza, and this was pre cocaine, right? This is this was pre cocaine when when it was still weed. Cocaine was starting to come, you know, right. starting to infiltrate. Um, so, uh, you know, was successful in in really changing uh, the genetics, uh, and wow. all of a sudden we started seeing all this uh, indica, high low, high quality indica coming across the border, packaged perfectly, everything done perfectly. <laughs> Uh, you know, end-to-end supply chain control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so it was at that point that I I noticed one other thing. Now that I had these cartel connections, uh, they sell over-the-counter in Mexico, headache tablets, which are composed of aspirin and ergotamine tartrate. tartrate. Right. So I said, No fucking way. There's got to be bags of ergotamine tartrate sitting around. Wherever they make these pills, right? Right. So I told my connections in the cartels, "Hey, can you guys get get this for me? There's bags of it sitting around." Oh, oh yeah, of course, we, of course we can get it for you. So they proceeded to uh, get me all the ergotamine tartrate that I needed, and the, and they also were able to get all the other German reagent chemicals. That right. I and so I put together enough precursor chemicals to make enough LSD to turn on everyone in the world like four times over. How the motherfucking... Leah. And proceeded to get it across the border. Of course, the smuggling organizations that were getting it for me had the ability to get it across the border. Gotcha. And then I had people who were able to move it up to uh, Marin County uh, in Northern California. And I proceeded to fill up a storage facility uh, at the Novato airport uh, filled with all the precursor chemicals (laughs) that are necessary to make LSD. What a trip. Okay. So I started making... What year was this? Approx? It was in the... uh, It was like 1985. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So um, I started making some preliminary R&D batches and perfected my technique perfectly and you know was make you know and i still you know uh i I can't say on this broadcast but uh let's say that i i i was able to make some really great r&d batches
1: wow really great fucking yeah
0: yeah and so i was going along fine uh i had one partner who thought you know what I know he probably needs this, because I would mentioned at one point, you know if I had this one chemical, but my my cartel guys will get this for me eventually. If I had this one reagent, I, I would really have a faster synthetic route. And he took it upon himself to try and get that for me. Okay. So he went to uh, an organization, uh, a, a business in Oakland that was actually a DEA sting. Oh! So he goes and gets this thing and takes it back to my storage facility. Oh, no! And so, now I'm like, oh, shit. Uh, well, I didn't know that at that point. So, I, I'm going along. Everything's fine. Everything's wonderful. You know, that there's those scenes in, um, uh, I think it was Goodfellas, where he keeps looking up. And yeah, and the his helicopter, helicopter seems right. like it's following. I had yeah. that exact experience. I felt like there was a helicopter oh, um, no. following me. And, and, in fact, there probably was. Oh, so, no. So I go to the storage facility to check on all the precursor chemicals, open the door, they're all gone. And in the middle oh, of the floor Oh, that's the worst fucking feeling in the world. In the middle of the floor is a little yellow post-it note that says, This is the DEA. Here's a phone number. Get a hold of us. Okay. What'd you do? So that it's at that point you decide, well, what am I gonna do? Am I gonna am I gonna go on the run? right? Do I really have the wherewithal to be able to do that, to have you know the F- FBI and the DEA chasing me all over the world? or do I you know, just go talk to them? Okay. So I lawyered up, okay, and I went and talked to them. Wow. Okay, And what, what did they have to say? They had to say that you know what? Uh, you're looking at probably 50 years to life on the amount of chemicals that are in here. Oh no! Yeah, yeah. So and there's there's no getting around it. You're you're in serious trouble. Think of it this way: you're on one side of a raging river, and you're gonna have to swim across. <laughs> and so, I said, "Yeah, you know that's not good." Uh, they said, "But there is an upside to this." And I said, "What?" They said, "Well, we know that you know the nephew." Of this guy who's in the cartel. Oh, no. And this guy is, in fact, a mass murderer. And they pulled out Polaroids that showed me all the people he killed. Uh, he was the psychopathic nephew of one of the guys that I knew. Oh, no. Okay. And, and so they said, look, he is being tried in absentia in the United States. Uh, and he has made a, a threat on the life of the Border Patrol agent who's testifying against him. Oh, shit. As well as uh, a threat on that guy's family. Okay. And we take this threat very seriously. We believe that he will try to take a hit out on uh. this guy and his family and everything else. So we're, we're trying to do our best to protect this guy, but this is in a really unstable situation. I said, well, that, that's very interesting. What could I possibly do to Okay. Him? They said, well, what we'd like you to do is kidnap him. Uh, uh okay. <laughs> so I, I got my posse together and we kidnapped.
1: Oh no. Oh my god, dude. And this guy's a straight up like real deal psychopathic murderer with guns. Yes.
0: Oh my god. <laughs> <no>. Oh my <laughs> fucking god, bro. Okay, so how does this go down? Yeah. So, you know, um you know, there's a lot of stories in between, but uh, you know, uh I had my first meeting with him. Uh, at this bar in in Juarez and I mean the first meeting for him I I had put out the idea that I can get you the the fake identification passport that you need to to go in back into the United States that was my overture okay to him okay and so he um, you know arranged the meeting we were meet at this a girly bar in Juarez so I'm sitting there drinking a tequila Trying to calm down, my palms are sweating. I'm I'm really super nervous. And I'm nervous for you right now, just hearing this story decades later. Finally, the guy shows up, it's in the afternoon, he puts his head into the door and he's with like these two big guys who goons with him who are like his bodyguards and stuff. Oh shit. So dude. he gestures, hey, come on, let's go. And so we get into this big giant black Lincoln navigator with blacked out windows and there's actually four bodyguards. Uh, You know, one guy driving, uh, he's sitting in the front passenger seat, and then there's uh, three other guys, two guys, one guy on either either side of me, and one guy in the back. Okay. Okay, so I thought, oh God, this is not the situation that is most desirable. (laughs) Uh, So we started driving, and I noticed we're driving off into the desert, right? I started thinking, Oh, These guys no. have figured this out, and they are gonna kill me and leave my body out here in the desert. I'm absolutely certain of that. Oh no! And so I, my palms are sweating, my heart is pounding. I'm trying to cover up so that they don't actually see visibly <laughs> that my heart. Is pounding. <laughs> and I look over at this guy, and he grins at me, and then the other guy grins at me, and I'm like, oh shit, you know. And so we keep driving out into the desert, out into the desert. I'm okay. Like, this is it, you know. I just gotta, you know. Face it, this is what's going to happen. And uh, we get out into the middle of the desert. He stops the car and he says, I just wanted to get out somewhere remote where we could talk. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, that's cool. how it went. Let me, let me <laughs> I mean, clean my drawers real quick. A lot of <laughs> that's sweet how discussion. it went generally. Oh, my God. Um, El Paso and Juarez are separated by a bridge over the Rio Grande. Right. Halfway in the middle of that the only two metropolitan centers separated by an international border. Wow. Okay. So halfway on that bridge is the United States; the other half is Mexico. Uh, the. And does the bridge have gates on it? I mean, is it just like a? It, it, it's it's a lineup of cars to get through. Oh, so it's
1: a it's like a but, six but lane freeway, freeway bridge. When you pass
0: this point, it's the United States. Gotcha. And when you're on this side, it's Mexico. Okay. So these guys told me, "Look, all you have to do is get them to the top of the bridge, and we'll take it from there." Gotcha. So I got them to the top of the bridge, and they took it from there. <laughs> Damn, yeah.
1: So, and so they
0: just kind of forgot about what was in the storage locker. They it? not only forgot about it, they said, look, you have earned yourself a free pass forever. No shit. Yeah. Wow. And at, at some point I had, you know, I was feeling a little bit of heat about it, a big underground grow that I was associated with. I called up my guy, and he was number two. In the entire organization, at that point, wow. Said, and I say, he said, "What's the nature of your problem?" I described it a little <laughs> bit. He says you no longer have a problem. Yeah. Click. <laughs> 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 Fucking excellent, yeah. excellent, wow. So, you know, I'm not proud of the fact that I had to work with the government, but I really, you know, really had no choice. And I feel like, you know, at least they got a psychopathic murderer crazy off the street. Yeah, what a uh, You know, and uh, still have that reserve batch of LSD. So, <laughs> I, I'll present you my begging bowl at, at, at some point later in
1: time. Crank call. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So then, so, so that happens. You round this guy up. And then at that point, what did you try to get right back into, you know, clandestine manufacturer or was yeah, it just back? You know, uh, man?
0: you know, continued to do, you know, sort of long, large scale import export on the, on the weed side of things. Okay. But it was at that time, I was really feeling the need to, you know, get back into pharmaceuticals and pharmaceutical development. Uh, You know, now that I've been cut off from making LSD, (laughs) I had to find some other way to develop novel chemistry. And so I I began to get involved in, uh, you know, cannabis uh, pharmacology and began working on cannabis drugs, uh, worked on a compound for sleep. Uh, founded, you know, iobio Biosciences, I think, in 2017. Uh, but it was the result of years of working in that area. Uh, so I worked on a compound, a formulation for sleep, formulations for pain relief, and formulations for appetite suppression. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'm, I've still got those. I'm still kind of working on those. Uh, had some really gr- great results with the sleep compound. Uh, put it up against uh, zolpidem, essentially Ambien, okay, uh, in a preclinical model with little rats hooked up to EEG to measure their little brain waves, and um, found out that the cannabis formulation with it was a combination of an analog of CBN and an analog of CBD uh, together uh, produced as many deep sleep bouts as Ambien. Wow. So we have four stages of sleep. Right. Stage three is when you start to get really deep sleep. Okay. Stage four is where you have rapid eye movement sleep. Gotcha. Where you have dreams. It's actually very important to for your metabolic processes to get rid of metabolic byproducts and all kinds of stuff. You need that stage four sleep. Wow. So what I found was that the um, the ambient compounds, Opa-Den, uh, completely eliminated stage four REM sleep. Whereas the cannabis compound Oh and, so so the Ambien would get you to stage three but actually wouldn't get you It'd into give you the, some some great stage three. So you're huh. really sleepy, but when it actually came t- came to the quality of sleep in stage four where you need that rapid eye movement, it would completely right. kill rapid eye movement sleep. Whereas the okay. cannabis based compound preserved rapid uh, eye movement sleep. Okay and had almost as many deep sleep bouts as uh, zolpidem. Wow. So the other thing that was interesting is uh, zolpidem produced uh, this wave pattern uh, that predominantly is gamma waves, and uh, predominant gamma wave patterns are associated with uh, dislocation, dissociation, uh, really that effect with Ambien where you wake up, and you're behind the wheel of a car right. you don't know how, how the hell you got here. Right, and, right. Or you're in the refrigerator and you're like, what am I doing? Yeah. Here? Why, am I, why did I've I? Open? heard so many stories like yeah. people wake up and they're like cooking eggs or yeah. frying a slice of ham and you're like, what the fuck am I doing? That's from gamma waves. And uh, the difference with the cannabis compound was that it had uh, a higher proportion of alpha and beta waves, right. which essentially would mean that when you wake up, if you did wake up in the middle of the experience, you wouldn't be like, "Where am I? What's going on?" You'd be pretty, pretty alert. Together with your so, uh, you know, I feel like I'm still on the right track with that compound. Sleep is a huge problem for people. Yeah, you know, uh, and developing a, a cannabis-based compound that preserves REM sleep and lowers the amount of gamma waves that Ambien does, and maybe could even be an over-the-counter product product because uh-huh. it was so safe. But now. Cannabis research is really stymied still, even though we're seeing this,
1: this huge movement of legalization, right? Mm-hmm. It seems that cannabis research is, is even behind psilocybin and MDMA research in like the amount available to do and,
0: and the, the ease of, of use or the ease of access to studies. Is that correct? Yeah, because uh, the, the terrible downside of what happened with cannabis is it got routed into a category that it's like an intoxicant. So it's, it's right. like an adult-use recreational product. And so it just bypassed any
1: thought of medical efficacy. Exactly. And it still remains federally illegal. And the federal research dollars going to federally funded teaching universities is why the research isn't happening because of this the federal scheduling still? Is that Yeah, yeah, yeah basically
0: I mean, exactly. It, it's still a Schedule One compound federally, which makes it really difficult <laughs> to do in research. And so uh, it's not only difficult to do the research, but you've also got it sort of slotted into this intoxicant category, this right. adult recreational category, where it seems to have the real value of it seems to be in getting you loaded.
1: Well, yeah, and if you're having fun, it can't actually be medically ethical because exactly. we still live in this Puritan fucking,
0: this yeah. old Puritan culture. So and if it's fun, it's not good. Yeah, so true. Right. So um, it, it's in that peculiar place. You know, there have been some attempts to try and develop its pharmacology, you know. Obviously, it has tremendous benefit for uh, epilepsy and, you know, particularly pediatric epilepsy. Uh, Very much You know, much it's so. got tremendous benefit for cancer. Uh, you know, uh, the, the other thing that I was really thinking would be a, a tremendous benefit is uh, an alternative to opiate-based pain medication. So pain... Very much essential. so. Very much yeah. so. Yeah.
1: I've, I, so I just hurt my knee, and I tried a that one night. Normally, I don't even do drugs, but I was just in so much pain I couldn't sleep. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if this happens to a lot of people, but for me, opioids don't actually lessen the pain at all. They just make no. me feel groggy. They distance I even got you a, from the pain. Yeah, I got another uh, Tramadol. They were going to give me Tramadol. Uh-huh. And like I just didn't even take it. I just Doesn't didn't even mean, do like, anything. I've been taking CBD gummies, uh-huh. which actually allowed me to sleep and feel good. Uh-huh. And and yeah, it's, it's so crazy that for me, the opioids, they don't even affect the pain. They just make me feel groggy and out of it. And they're kind of just the worst for me.
0: So I think there's an opportunity to develop Uh, a a pain relief compound that could be, again, used very effectively with addiction. Awesome. Because, you know, if you could tell people, okay, here's so many people encounter addiction through the vector of pain relief. Yes, sir. You know, so here we have a situation where instead of giving you uh, an opiate-based medication, we can give you a cannabis-based, non-addictive medication. Right. Uh, And perhaps we can then treat your underlying uh, compulsivity issues with a psychedelic. Nice. So you know they could be used effectively together, in this future model of medicine. Well, and if you get if and, you get
1: addicted to a cannabis pain reliever, about the only side effects are you're gonna start taking a disc golfing and maybe listen to the Grateful Dead.
0: You know, you know maybe some difficulty sleeping once you you know wean off, off of the it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean it's mild compared to opiates. Let's, oh yeah, very much. So. Very way. much. So, yes. So. Maybe there's room for a compound like that, I think, uh, you know, that would be extremely beneficial.
1: And I know MAPS is trying to get some cannabis research into the pipeline, but it just seems like they've had a lot more pushback. It's just so ironic that they've had so much more pushback with cannabis than with, again, MDMA and and mushrooms.
0: Yeah, you know, it's it's as if, uh, you know, the medical value of mushrooms and psilocybin, LSD was recognized initially. There is no potential for abuse, really. Right. It, it's it's gonna be strictly, you know, what is its medical benefit? Whereas cannabis, ah, there's little potential for abuse there. Uh, my kind of way of getting that around that with the pain relief compound was uh, methyl esterizing, the THC, uh, which is a, a situation where, you know, you take it orally, it takes probably twenty minutes to half an hour to break off the methyl ester, okay. which makes it water soluble in the body, makes it more effective. Okay. But it eliminates the potential for abuse because it doesn't have that immediate oh, drug reinforcement mechanism. You don't get like the rush. You don't get the rush. It takes a while, so it's it's not as conducive to uh, addiction. That's that's really cool.
1: That's that's really cool.
0: I'd uh, love to really see more of that. Where I think the benefit is so. right.
1: So, so when, it, when is you, when are your core compounds going to begin moving into their clinical trials?
0: Uh, phase one trial at the end of the year, awesome you know, given that awesome. everything goes according to plan, it's a, you know it's a big deal moving a compound into a Phase one trial. Wow. It's really difficult. There's a lot of stuff you got to do. Uh, you got to you know check all these regulatory boxes. It's, it's not easy at all. Very and easy. it costs a fortune. That's the other Millions thing. of dollars, right? Millions of dollars. Right. And that's why a lot of
1: those uh, generics, a lot of times there's no studies on generics, certain supplements, because because they're not patentable. You end up, who's going to foot a three to five million dollar bill for something that everybody's going to profit from using under this current model that we have, right?
0: Right. Well, what we have now is you've you got a generic compound. You can have, you do what's called a method of use patent. So you're using it specifically for treatment resistant depression. Or something like that. If that's a new or novel treatment, you could then have... Well, it it, it becomes what's called a method of use patent. And instead of, you know, a a five to seven year runway of Uh exclusivity, Uh you have a two year. Oh, okay. So Compass Pathways, their thought is by developing a psilocybin treatment for depression, they'll have a two year runway of exclusivity. Oh, so even though they're using traditional psilocybin? Yeah, and even though okay. I could walk down the street and get some mushrooms and probably right. do the same thing right. and not have to pay for their, right, you know, and I could probably find a shrink who will give me some psychotherapy along with it, right. I could probably do the whole thing a lot more cheaply, that's true.